Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 will be our sermon text for this morning. And before we read this chapter together, let's pray together. Our Father, as we have been saying and singing this morning, we come to worship you, our, uh, we come to worship you and your son Jesus, our risen King. And our Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would give us eyes to see Jesus in the scriptures, give us hearts to understand and to believe what we read in the scriptures, and help us to delight in, to worship and adore Christ, our risen King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ has risen from the dead. Christ is risen from the dead. What does that mean? Why is it important? What difference does it make? Why does the Christian church celebrate the resurrection? Most Christian churches throughout history have set aside Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. And, And those who didn't, some English Puritans and Scottish Presbyterians, our forebearers, 
saw every Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection. Believing in the bodily historical resurrection of Jesus is essential to the Christian faith. If you deny that Jesus rose from the dead, you're you're not a Christian, whatever else you might believe. But so what? Why does it matter? Let's explore uh, just one set of implications this morning. We live in an age that is obsessed with power and authority. Even when those who misuse power and authority are criticized, uh, the goal is to remove them from power and take matters into our own hands. We don't want to do away with power. We want to get the wrong people out of power and the right people in it. We really do believe that the battle is to the strong and the race is to the swift and the early bird gets the worm and money answers everything and your destiny is in your hands. And so we are continually asking this question, where is real power and authority found? How can I get it? This may be as simple as learning that you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar, uh, meaning you can have more friends if you're nice to people. That's a kind of power. Or it may be as nefarious as learning to intimidate others to get your way. It may be about committing to a life of academics because as Schoolhouse Rock taught us all, knowledge is power. Or pursuing politics so that you can have an influence on the world. And this pursuit of power can lead to both hopelessness and burnout. Hopelessness, if I realize as much power as I might get in this life, it never seems to be enough. Burnout because I keep trying anyway. And self-reliance inevitably leads to exhaustion. Now, by no means do I want to suggest that power is bad, but I do think it is misunderstood. And if you are a Christian and you are living in either hopelessness or self-reliance, you have forgotten where real power and authority lies. And you are living as if Christ had not been raised. Regardless of what you profess, your functional theology, if you are living in hopelessness or self-reliance, is that Christ is still in the grave. You are on your own, and if you want good things in life, it's up to you to make it happen. But Christ has risen from the dead, being exalted as the king of heaven and earth. And Christ's exaltation vindicates Christ's method of power in weakness and demonstrates the powerlessness of the powers of this age, which means if you want to enter into a life of God's power at work in your weakness, repent, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. God's understanding of power can only be seen as we look at the cross and the resurrection, and God's power made perfect in Christ's weakness. Hence, our four points for this morning. You can see them in your bulletin. Christ has been exalted as the king of heaven and earth. Christ's exaltation vindicates God's power in our weakness. Christ's exaltation demonstrates the powerlessness of the powers of this age. Therefore, repent, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. So first, Christ has been exalted as the king of heaven and earth. Who has real power and authority? Politicians, academics, the media, your parents, your friends, the cool kids in school? Is real power about brute strength, sleight of hand, manipulation techniques, money, 
The book of Matthew uh, from chapter one has been answering this question, who has real authority? And how is real power exercised in the world? And from the start, the focus has been on Jesus. Matthew chapter one shows us Jesus as the son of David, the rightful heir of the throne of the kingdom of Israel. God had said way back in 2 Samuel that David would have a son who would be called God's son. And so the son of God is the king of Israel. And so the point of of dispute in Matthew's gospel is, is is the question, is Jesus God's son? And therefore, is he the rightful king of Israel? And so at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus immediately goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil who begins his temptations, if you are the son of God. And the demons know who Jesus is and proclaim him to be the son of God. Uh, Jesus is also called the son of man. A phrase which refers to a vision in the book of Daniel, where one like a son of man comes before the ancient of days, God enthroned in heaven, and receives from him authority. And so when Jesus says the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, again we hear about Jesus as the one who has all authority. The son of man, the son of God, the king of Israel. When the crowds sung to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David, they again proclaimed Jesus as king. Everywhere, Matthew keeps telling us Jesus is the king. He has authority. The problem, of course, is that Jesus doesn't look like one who has authority. Jesus says the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Uh, Okay, I mean, that's fine, but it's not, you know, kingly. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Again, kings don't serve, right? I mean, they are served. That's what makes them kings, right? Jesus said the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified, And of course, for his disciples, this was going too far. Peter rebukes Jesus for saying such a thing, but Jesus just digs in his heels. And then he is arrested and accused and beaten and mocked. He's not given a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And kneeling before him, the Roman soldiers mock him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. The charge over the head of Jesus as he bled and suffocated and died on the cross was this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He didn't look very kingly. He didn't look like one who had authority. The people at the cross mocked him in Matthew 27, 40. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In verse 42, he is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. But he didn't. And so they didn't. Jesus said to Peter at his arrest, he could have commanded an army of angels to come and fight for him, but he didn't. What kind of a king just gives up? And what we miss is this, Jesus as our king fights for us, but the most important enemies to fight were sin and death and the devil. But you don't fight sin with a sword and you can't kill death with a spear or a gun. Jesus fought sin with his righteousness and defeated death by dying. Jesus said the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is what Jesus did. He died for sinners though he was righteous. 
But of course, righteous people don't deserve death. Death is a judicial punishment for sin. And so when Jesus, the righteous one, died, he broke the system. When Jesus died, he broke death. Death could not keep its hold on him. Sin's debt was paid on the cross. God's wrath was satisfied. Death had no right to keep him. And so Jesus rises from the dead as our victorious king, having defeated our worst enemy according to the Father's plan. Which is why Jesus can say, then in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father and received the earth as his reward. He inherited the land, all of it. When the Father raised Jesus from the dead, he vindicated his son and enthroned him as king, not just as son of David, king of Israel, but as son of God, king of heaven and earth. Christ has been exalted as king of heaven and earth. He is not just the king of Israel. He is not just the king of the church. He is not like so many politicians that that rule over this or that land or have sway in this or that district. Jesus is king of heaven and earth. So point one, Christ has been exalted as the king of heaven and earth. Point two, Christ's exaltation vindicates God's power at work through weakness. And look at our story. Who are the powerful and who are the powerless in this story? Uh, Look at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now if you've read the Gospels, the other Gospels, you may wonder how many women went to the tomb. Uh, Matthew has two, John has one, Mark has three, Luke has at least five. So how many was it? Well, if you're interested in ferreting out such questions, feel free to chat with me afterwards. Uh, But the the short answer is this. The Gospels have different details of this story, as they do with every story. But those details do not contradict one another. They're just different, right? If you have five, there were at least three. And if there were two, there was at least one. The Gospels tell a similar enough story that they don't contradict one another. But the details have enough differences to show that they didn't collaborate. Each gospel is an independent witness to the events of that resurrection morning. And so Matthew tells us about two of the women who were there, Mary Magdalene and another Mary. They are women in a culture where women had no power. What do we know of Mary Magdalene? At least that she had been possessed by seven demons, but that Jesus healed her. Uh, Again, she she was not a woman of power, not a woman of means. She wasn't in politics, she likely wasn't wealthy, but here she is at the tomb of Jesus. And behold, Matthew wants us to look, to see, to pay attention. There was a great earthquake. Why an earthquake? Because an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and he came and rolled away the stone, the stone that covered the mouth of Jesus' tomb. And the angel sat on it, sat victorious yet as if lounging on a rock in his backyard. This angel looked like lightning. I'm not quite sure what that means. Bright, flashing, flashy. His clothes were white as snow. And there are guards there guarding the tomb lest Jesus' disciples should steal the body and say Jesus rose. They were guarding the tomb of a dead man. How much power do the religious leaders think they have if they must guard the tomb of a dead man? And they see the angel and they pee their pants. Okay, that's not what the text says. It says they tremble and become like dead men. They are scared to death. 
They are scared stiff. They can't move. In verse 5, the angel says, to the women, not to the guards, not to the powerful, to the women, do not be afraid. Notice what's going on. Here are these soldiers with armor and weapons. They were put here to ward off grave robbers, disciples who might steal the body. They were put there to fight anyone who might try to take Jesus' body. These are warriors, and they're scared stiff. But the angel ignores them and says to the women, do not be afraid. He says, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Jesus has risen. He said he would rise, and he did it. Come see the empty tomb. Come see the place where he was, but is no more. By the way, this explains the rolling away of the stone. You know, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could escape, as if he were trapped. It was rolled away so that people could verify that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. But that's not all. The angel goes on, then go quickly and tell his disciples. And that's exactly what the women do. They, they run to tell the disciples with fear and great joy. They, they don't even know what to feel, what to think. Are they afraid or are they happy? And as they run, Jesus meets them. They're running down the road, and there he is, Jesus greeting them on the road. So they run, they fall at his feet, his risen from the dead, flesh and blood feet, and they worship. And Jesus says the same thing as the angel, don't be afraid, go and tell. Now again, think about what is going on here in relation to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' life did not look kingly. He came in weakness. He came poor. He came uh, unknown. He came to suffer. He came to die. He didn't fight with a sword. He didn't levy taxes. He didn't build great monuments. He taught the common people. He was convicted as a criminal. He bled and he died. But in that, Jesus won victory over sin and death. And in that, Jesus defeated our greatest enemy. And the result was the resurrection, the vindication of King Jesus, the beginning of a new life, a new age, a new creation. What looked like weakness was God's power at work. Notice that same thing here. Here are two relatively powerless women and at least two relatively strong soldiers. The soldiers are scared to death. The women are commissioned. They receive the message, do not be afraid. Why? Christ has been raised. What they thought was sad, uh, was the sad ending of Jesus' story has come untrue. Unlike the angel in the Garden of Eden, the angel in this garden was not here to ward them off, but to bring the good news that Christ has risen from the dead. But what's more, these, these women are to take this news to the disciples. You've probably heard that, that in that day, uh, women, it is said, could not even testify in court. Their eyewitness was worthless. They, they were so uh, little valued. And so if you're going to announce the greatest moment in history, the defeat of death itself and the resurrection of Jesus, and you want people to believe it, where are you going to start? You're going to go to those in power to the media, to politicians, to the rich and the famous. You're going to go to those who would be believed. But Jesus comes to two women, two women whose testimony would not even hold up in court. Why? 
Because God's power is made perfect through weakness. God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He uses those who are rejected to announce his message of acceptance. Christ's exaltation vindicates God's power in weakness and sets the program for the growth of his church, which doesn't come through force, through armies or Congress or the Supreme Court. Christ's kingdom comes through the weakness of the witness of the overlooked and the undervalued. So first, Christ has been exalted as the king of heaven and earth. Second, Christ's exaltation vindicates God's power in weakness and sets the program for the growth of Christ's kingdom, power through weakness. Third, Christ's exaltation demonstrates the powerlessness of the powers of this age. Uh, these two points, of course, go hand in hand. Remember the soldiers. But, but first, consider the resurrection itself. Jesus was put to death by the powers of this age. The religious elite conspired with the political elite to get rid of someone who to them was inconvenient. Jesus was a troublemaker. So they used their power and their influence to get rid of him. They used their influence, their coercion of Pontius Pilate, the governor, the power of the sword. They used the soldiers. They used the nails to put Jesus to death. They brought the best of the religious, political, and military might to bear upon Jesus and crucified him under Pontius Pilate. But Jesus didn't stay dead. Their power was powerless before the cross and the resurrection, before the righteousness of the God-man and the resurrection power of the Spirit. But it doesn't end there. The power of Jesus continues to demonstrate the powerlessness of the powers of this age. First, the soldiers, right? They cower before the angel. King Jesus, crucified and risen, sends his errand boy and soldiers cower before him. But that's not all. At some point, some of the guards escape the gaze of the angel and they go into the city and tell the chief priests all that had taken place. Now, there's probably something strategic going on for them. You see, uh, these soldiers had failed. Their job was to guard the body, but the body was gone. Whatever else might have happened, they did not do their job. And if they go to their superiors or to Governor Pilate, the penalty for failure could be death. The guards are still afraid, afraid of the powers of this age. So they go to the chief priests. Maybe they can work out a deal with them and save their skin. And they tell them everything. Now, how much did they get? Were they there when the angel announced the resurrection? Uh, we don't really know, but it appears so. The chief priests gather uh, the elders and take counsel. And what do they decide? Not Jesus has risen. He must be the Messiah, the king we've been waiting for. No, they decide to pay off the soldiers. They decide to use what little power they have to hold back the news of Jesus' resurrection. They say to the soldiers in verse 13, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now you've got to notice the extreme irony here. Back at the end of Matthew 27, we read this after Jesus' burial. Verse uh, 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure under the third day, until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. 
So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Except now, Jesus has risen from the dead. And the very story that they were worried about, they now propagate. Now it's, it's really a shabby story. Right? If all the guards really did fall asleep, how would they know it was Jesus' disciples who stole the body? And if even one of the guards was awake, why didn't he shout to wake the rest to protect the tomb? And how did they possibly stay asleep as, according to their story, multiple grown men rolled away what many estimate to be a stone that weighed up thousands of pounds? They slept through that. The story is full of holes, but it's the best thing they've got. And so the chief priests used the, the, the power of money and the power of deceit to try to keep quiet that Jesus had risen from the dead. How did that work out for them? And they say, if the governor finds out, they'll pay him off too. You might wonder, why don't the guards just tell the truth? Well, for one, the guards are still afraid. Afraid of Pilate, afraid of the power of death, the power of death, which if they only believe their own message, they would realize has been undone. Besides, they probably think that no one will believe them. I mean, it sounds like they just fell asleep on the job and they're making up excuses, right? Yet again, irony of ironies, the very thing they likely think no one will possibly believe is the message that has gone throughout the world for 2,000 years. Here is the great demonstration that the powers of this age are powerless. They tried to put Jesus to death and he rose. They tried to keep his resurrection quiet and that news has gone throughout the world. In a world where the, the powers of this age reigns, none of this story makes sense. I mean, in a world of power, uh, women would not be the, the first ones to witness the resurrection, but men of power and prominence. In a world of power, Jesus wouldn't make himself known to a few no-name disciples in Galilee, but to the religious and political elite in Jerusalem, or Rome, even better. In a world of power, you pay off people to disseminate lies to maintain control, but how did that work out for them? In a world of power, you post a guard to avoid the story that people stole the body, and now they are disseminating that very story. In a world of power, what choice did the guards have? Who would believe the truth? The only thing they could do was take the money and lie. The truth would sound like something they made up to cover their failure. But in fact, the lie is something they made up to cover their failure, the failure of the powers of this age, and it is the truth that has been believed for 2,000 years. See, in a world of power, when we get to verse 17, Matthew shouldn't say some doubted, but he's honest. And so he does, because the gospel doesn't progress through worldly power and money and lies, but through God's power made perfect in human weakness. Christ has been exalted as king of heaven and earth. His exaltation vindicates God's power at work in human weakness. Christ's exaltation demonstrates the powerlessness of the powers of this age. Therefore, repent, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus, in his death, conquered sin, and in his resurrection, he conquered death and the devil. He has been exalted as king of heaven and earth, which vindicates God's method of power and weakness and demonstrates the ultimate powerlessness of the powers of the present age. So how should we respond? Repent, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus, in the Great Commission, says this in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
In light of Jesus' authority, he commissions the church to go and make disciples. Baptism is is always a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism means a break with the present age, an entrance into Christ's kingdom, the church. And so for those who grew up outside of Christ's church, baptism means a change in direction. Baptism is not an insistence on our power, but an admittance of our weakness. One of the ways we are tempted to face the brokenness of this world is by seeking to take matters into our own hands. Satan's lie has always been, if you want good things, you must take them by force. There's the tree, Eve, go get it. If you want goodness, you've got to grit your teeth, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be good. If you want comfort and pleasure, you've got to grit your teeth, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be a go-getter. Go get good things for yourself. You're in control of your life. You determine your own destiny. You have no one to blame but yourself. So go make something of yourself. Now, there's another pervasive lie right now. Uh, we would say things like, well, it's, it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault or society's fault or genetics' fault. Your situation is really hopeless, hopeless, so just learn to cope and make the best out of life. But it ends in the same place, doesn't it? You make the best out of life. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. So the options the world gives us are either hopelessness or self-reliance. You do something about it. But by his resurrection, Jesus disproved this bootstrap theology. He went to the cross in humility. He was broken and died. He lost his life and then found it again in the resurrection. In so doing, he redeemed us from sin and set us an example of sacrificial service as the way to glory. Humility as the means of exaltation. Jesus showed us we must lose our lives in order to find them. This is what is pictured in baptism. A break with the old life and a beginning of a new one. That is what passing through the Red Sea meant for Israel. That's what passing through the waters of baptism means for us. We are not a people of the old world, of the power of the flesh, but a people of the new world, of power made perfect in weakness. But baptism is not the end of dying to self. Uh, Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples by baptizing and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptism is not the end of dying to self. It's just the beginning. The Great Commission is not just to baptize, but to teach people to observe everything that Jesus commanded us. Baptism begins a life of apprenticeship in self-denial. The Christian life is not a life of asserting our power to get our way but dying to self for the good of others, a life of imitating Jesus by taking up our cross and following him. The Christian life is a life of losing our lives that we might find them. Every time we we let someone uh, cut us off in line, whether in the grocery store or on the highway, every time we let someone else get, get in the bathroom ahead of us or give someone else the last piece of cake, Every time we wash the dishes for our spouse, even though we'd much rather be watching Ted Lasso or Mandalorian. Every time we take a lower paying job because it allows us to spend more time with our family or put more time into a local ministry. Every time we die a little to ourselves, our desires, our wishes, so that we can love God and neighbor and serve God by serving neighbor, we observe what Christ commanded. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. We lose our life that we might find it in him. If you want to know true power, don't flex your muscles, but go low. Humble yourself. Confess your sin and serve others. 
knowing that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Through confession of sin come justification and righteousness, and through serving and humility come exaltation and glory. Christ has been exalted as the king of heaven and earth. Christ's exaltation vindicates God's power in weakness and demonstrates the powerlessness of the powers of this age. Therefore, repent, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we need the gift of your spirit if we might see Jesus for who he is, believe in him, repent of our sin, take up our cross, and follow him. Father, pour out your spirit to those ends. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.